Welcome to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. My name is Marvin and over the next two hours and 45 minutes, you will learn about evidence-based sepsis therapy. Before we go into that topic, we will start with the talk Sepsis, a Call to Action by Conrad Reinhardt. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to Simon Finfer to give his opening remarks. My name is Simon Finfer. I'm an intensive care clinician and researcher in Sydney in Australia, and I'm a member of the Global Sepsis Alliance Executive. It's my honor and privilege to welcome you to the first World Sepsis Congress, which is a prelude to the fifth World Sepsis Day next Tuesday. As we're all aware, sepsis is a major global health problem, which makes holding a World Sepsis Congress highly topical at this time. Sepsis affects approximately, well, in excess of 30 million people worldwide each year and causes over 5 million deaths. And over the next two days, we're going to hear from politicians, policymakers, clinicians, scientists, and importantly also from patients who have survived sepsis and families of people who have had sepsis and some have succumbed to sepsis. And so we'll hear about all aspects of this terrible condition that will help us to reduce the global burden of sepsis. It just remains for me to thank those whose hard work and dedication and selflessness have made this first World Sepsis Congress possible. Uh, firstly, Conrad Reinhardt and Marvin Zick, who have done, I think it would be fair to say, more work than anyone else on this Congress, and certainly a good deal more than me. I'd like to thank the sponsors, the main sponsor, the Center for Sepsis Control and Care um, in Jena, Germany, and Jena University Hospital, and also our company sponsors, without whom this just would not have been possible. Over 100 national and international organizations who have promoted the Congress to their members, and our Global Sepsis Alliance World Sepsis Day ambassadors, Minister Helga Braun, Sir Liam Donaldson, and Dr. Thomas Frieden. And finally, the German Ministry of Health for its support and encouragement. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to the next two days, I'm sure, We're all going to learn a great deal from each other as we work together to try and reduce the burden of sepsis. I'd like now to hand over to my colleague on the GSA executive, uh, Tex Kassoon, who will chair the first session for us. Thank you very much, Simon. And uh, as you've heard, I am Tex Kassoon. Um, I'm the vice chair of the Global Sepsis Alliance. And I would like to welcome each and every one of you to this uh, first World Sepsis Conference. Uh, we have a, a, an exciting program for you, as you've heard, and we have had approximately 14,000 registrants. So uh, I'm very grateful for each and every one of you for joining us. And the next speaker is going to be Conrad Reinhardt, who really uh, needs no introduction. He's the chairman of the Global Sepsis Alliance and the, one of the key initiators of World Sepsis Day. Uh, he's a member and, chair and uh, chairman of the International Sepsis Forum and a member of the Council of the World Federation of Societies of Intensive Care. 
and critical care medicine from 2008 to 2013. He is also a member of the Germany National Academy of Science, Leopoldina, and chair of the, chairman of the Sepsis Foundation. So with that introduction, I would like uh, Conrad to um, give his talk. Thanks, Dex, for your kind introduction. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, let me talk about why we, call, we need a call to action. We need it to stop sepsis, the leading cause of preventable deaths. And we need it because the burden of sepsis is grossly underestimated and the knowledge and awareness on sepsis is poor and even more so because lack of awareness kills. According to the Global Burden of Disease Report, with more than 10 million deaths, and probably this is an underestimation, still infections are the second number cause of death on the global level. What is not known, what is, not known is the fact that sepsis is the primary cause of the, uh, from infection. And uh, that's why, globally, sepsis is more common than heart attacks and kills more people than any cancer. Interestingly, lower respiratory tract infections are the number one cause of global years of life lost, according uh, to the Global Burden of Disease report. However, this means, again, that the number one cause of global years life lost is sepsis because you will not die from a lower respiratory tract infection when it does not progress to sepsis. And we heard this number already, 30 million estimated deaths and cases, not cases, per year. And again, this is probably highly underestimated because this data is derived from epidemiological studies in the US, in Europe, and Australia. And there's no data at all in those parts of the world where most of mankind live. And as the global distribution of deaths from infectious diseases is very unequal, and most of these deaths occur in Africa and Asia, uh, that's again uh, is very indicative that the current numbers are grossly underestimated. And even in the US, with costs of over 22 billion US dollars annually for hospital treatment of sepsis, this makes sepsis the number one cost driver in this country, and we have similar data that this is also true in Germany. And despite these scaring numbers, the term sepsis is not known by the individuals in all countries. And sepsis must become a household word. Currently, only 7% of people have heard the word sepsis. In Brazil, 21%. In Sweden, in Canada, 29%. UK, 40%. US, 44%. And 49% in Germany. There's good news because according to a poll in the U.S. done by the Sepsis Alliance there only several weeks ago, it changed. So the awareness of sepsis has increased due to the great work that has been done in the U.S. during the last year. 
and I'm aware of the fact that similar numbers are also there from the UK, where also the UK sepsis trust and uh, families, etc., did a great job to increase awareness from sepsis. So we can make a difference. And clearly, a lack of awareness kills. Superman star Christopher Reeve died from sepsis, which derived from a pressure wound, which is very common in paralyzed people. However, in his environment, it was only recognized after days or a week that he's in a serious condition when he had a heart arrest. And ironically, his publicist said he died from heart failure. He was brought to a hospital on a Saturday when he had this heart attack and died on Sunday. Clearly, you must not die from a wound infection. So this is also true that we have a problem of poorly recognition of sepsis in the hospital setting. This report by the National Confidential Inquiry into Patient Outcome and Death from 2015 in UK, which interestingly was called Just Say Sepsis, revealed that sepsis is poorly mentioned and named also in the healthcare summary. More than 46% of patients uh, in this, their cases, sepsis was not mentioned in their discharge summary. Likewise, sepsis in almost 60% of patients was not mentioned uh, in the uh, death certificate of these patients. So we need to change this. The public understanding of sepsis is shaped by the term blood poisoning. But it's fully acknowledged and known and understood that sepsis may not only arise from wound infections. Everybody should understand that sepsis is a life-threatening condition that arises when the body's response to an infection ensures its own tissues and organs. And everybody should know the most common infections that can lead to sepsis, which pneumonia, number one, intra-abdominal infections, number two, and urinary tract infections and infections from the skin, etc., uh, are following. And basically, um, in the resource-poor settings, also the most common sources of sepsis are pneumonia. We have heard this. But also diarrheal diseases, malaria, dengue, Ebola. You will hear a talk uh, by somebody from the Médecins Sans Frontières making the point that the main cause of death uh, in Ebola is septic shock. This is same is true from hemorrhagic fever, yellow fever, and many other tropical infections because they all result in organ dysfunction and uh, uh, shock. Everybody should know also that sepsis is an emergency that requires acute care measures beyond infection control, such as fluid resuscitation and organ support. And that's why it's so crucial to, to, to call it sepsis when it's sepsis, because it's not enough to only treat and act with, micro, with antimicrobials. We need these additional uh, measures, which are cheap measures, by the way. That's why, for another reason, the GSA calls to action because sepsis can pre be prevented by vaccination and clean care. And everybody should join the great campaign 
by WHO uh, and uh, under the leadership of uh, Professor Didier Bidet, one of our supporters, and Benedetta Allegranzi, uh, because they have done a great job and involved more than 100 countries uh, also uh, to, to work on this issue. And we need also to learn from the great success story of the vaccine alliance Gavi. By immunizing more than 500 million children over the last 10 years, they were able to prevent and avert more than 7 million deaths. And what we should learn here, that vaccination must also become standard for the adult at risk population. So the vaccination rates, at least in the developed world for children, are quite good, but they are pretty poor for the elderly above age 60, which also are at risk for sepsis, for the healthcare personnel, for pregnant women, for asplenic and immunocompromised patients, patients with diabetes, chronic lung, heart, liver, and renal, renal disease, patients with chronic alcohol, alcohol, uh, alcoholism. So they need to get vaccinated. And there is excellent data from prospective randomized study in more than 85,000 adults above 65 years in the Netherlands. They were able to reduce invasive pneumococcal disease, which is nothing else than sepsis, and pneumococcal pneumonia by 75% and 45% respectively, using uh, a vaccine which, uh, has, uh, which works with 13 strains uh, of uh, pneumonia or pneumococci. So also the TSA urgently calls to actions because sepsis morbidity and mortality can be, be reduced by up to 50% by early recognition and treatment. And this is cheap. It's not much money. And in some countries, obviously, evidence sepsis recognition and especially treatment seems to work. These numbers that mortality rates in Australia from ICU-treated patients over the last 10 years went down from 35% to below 20%. The same, albeit from a higher range in different severities of sepsis. This is true in the United uh, Kingdom, where also there's a continuous uh, reduction. However, in a country like Germany, you see that there's also a slight decrease, but our mortality rate from septic stock is still in the range of 50%, and our mortality rate from severe sepsis is over 40%. So even in a country like UK, where we have seen a decrease of ICU-treated sepsis patient mortality in ICU sepsis patients. Uh, this report I just uh, told you about uh, from the National Confidential Inquiry into Patient Outcome and Death revealed that between 20 and 50% of patients admitted to hospitals in the UK are diagnosed and treated too late. This is especially true for patients with severe sepsis uh, and uh, sepsis without organ dysfunction, and it's also uh, not ideal for patients with septic shock. And this is associated with delayed therapy. In 44% antimicrobials was delayed. In 42% surgical source control was delayed. And according 
to the reviewer's opinion, this uh, had a, a bad outcome, uh, a bad effect on outcome. And the authors of this report made the point that sepsis is a major cause of avoidable mortality and morbidity. And they also made the point, and luckily this was taken up by the media, that sepsis needs to be treated the same as heart attacks. We have standards to care about heart attacks, but we don't have yet standards uh, to treat sepsis in every hospital. We have standards to treat stroke, etc., etc., and we must get uh, this also for sepsis. So similar deficits also exist in Germany. This is from a trial with 40 hospitals and more than 4,000 patients, where only one-third received their first, first antimicrobial agent within one hour. And what we found out again, that each hour delay in administration of antimicrobial therapy resulted in a 2% increase in 2088 mortality. And those patients who received their source surgical source control had a mortality within six hours, had a mortality rate of only 28% compared to 36% in those patients where this therapy was delayed. This is the bad news. The good news is that we can make a difference by quality improvement programs like this program in Canada, who achieved over a two-year period a relative reduction in sepsis mortality by almost 20%. And the same is possible, and this has been demonstrated in several hospital uh, chains in the U.S., uh, by Northwell, uh, by Kaisers Permanente, and also uh, by Mountain Healthcare, uh, that by healing and uh, improving early recognition and evidence-based therapy, there was a dramatic reduction of sepsis mortality. And also in Germany, a host the hospital, university hospital from Greifswald, who instituted such a program in 2008, were able to decrease their mortality compared to the period before by 20% uh, over uh, this uh, period. So we need to learn from these quality improvement projects, and we also needed to learn from other fields like cancer and HIV who have been highly successful to decrease mortality. And they understood better than we did that for any illness to rise to political prominence, it needed marketing. And they understood that a disease needed to be transformed politically before it could be transformed scientifically. That is why the fight against sepsis requires coordinated efforts by all stakeholders, health authorities, healthcare providers, healthcare workers, patients and their families, science, society, and policymakers. And it's of utmost importance that we closely get support and work closely with the World Health Organization. And we are on a good way on this. That's why we request as GSA, a resolution on sepsis by the World Health Assembly in 2017. And we also request and encourage national action plans against sepsis. And the good news is that the German speaker, speaking ministers of health in October last year took a decision to put 
sepsis on the international agenda. And the TSA calls to support this initiative to get a resolution uh, by the World Health Assembly in next year uh, on, the, on the agenda. And I'm very glad that the German Minister of Health, Hermann Gröhe, in his address and message to the participants of this Congress, stated that he is lobbying for next year's World Health Assembly to adopt a resolution on sepsis. And I won't want to finish this talk to stress the fact that the engagement of families affected by sepsis was and is of utmost importance. I mentioned just a few. The Rory family, the, flat, the Flatley family, the Mead family in UK, who didn't accept that their loved one and their children died unnecessarily uh, from sepsis. So they spoke out and they made it happen that, for example, the Secretary of Health in the UK before the House of Parliament had to admit that there are problems with the quality of sepsis management in the National Health Service. Hindi also made the point that sepsis is a condition whose time has to come. And hopefully, and I'm quite optimistic, that they will take action and they will invest in quality improvement. And when the CDC only four weeks ago launched an excellent program to increase awareness in the U.S. and beyond, and they called it Think Sepsis and made the point that times matters. And when now you will find sepsis mentioned in the A to Z list of the CDC, which was not the case when the Staunton family looked up their A to Z list when they had lost their son. And this has changed. And Tom Frieden has become, as a director, one of our ambassadors. This is the way to go, and I think we are we are on a good move through this joint action between families and healthcare providers and physicians as us. So what can you do? You should join the fight against sepsis. You should support and lobby again in your country for a resolution on sepsis by the WHA. You should ask for a national action plan. You should initiate quality improvement programs in your hospital and region, spot sepsis, Treat sepsis, say sepsis. I thank you for your kind attention and would like um, that you support us also in the future. Thank you for your kind attention. Um, <clears throat> my name is Mark Ziegenfuss. I'm the uh, president of the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society, and I'm sitting in Brisbane, Australia. First of all, I, I just want to congratulate um, Marvin Zwick, uh, Conrad Reinhardt, and Simon Finfer for the efforts on putting this together, and also uh, the rest of the organizing committee. And then obviously, I, I just want to acknowledge the sponsors, without whom none of this would happen. Just before I introduce the first speaker, um, at this very second in time, uh, daylight is shining on 88% of the world's population. Um, that's about 6.64 billion people. Of those 6.64 billion people, approximately 32 million will encounter sepsis uh, in this year. The sad thing is that survival rates um, amongst the countries covered uh, by this current conference are from very poor to excellent 
and um, we're trying to, through educational efforts like this, uh, foster improvement in all things sepsis. So I'd like to introduce our first speaker, um, and his name is Tobias Wouter. He's a professor of pulmonary medicine and director of the Department of Pulmonary and Infectious Diseases in Hanover in Germany. Um, he <coughs> received his doctorate in respiratory medicine from Hanover University in 1994. Um, he is uh, the incoming president, I believe, for the European Society of Respiratory Medicine, which will be bestowed on him uh, next Wednesday. He's previously um, held the uh, position of head of respiratory intensive care assembly and has been on multiple uh, committees. He is widely read and widely published. And without further ado, for the first uh, to speak about evidence-based medicine or evidence-based medicine and sepsis therapy, I would like to welcome Tobias. Over to you. So welcome. Thank you very much for the kind invitation. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And I want to give you an overview um, uh, about uh, the importance, uh, the challenges of anti uh, antimicrobial resistance in Germany. So welcome. So antimicrobial resistance, where are we at the moment? And I want to uh, separate, divide my talk into two parts. First, uh, about gram-positive pathogens and the second about gram-negative pathogens. And I will start with gram-positive pathogens, the main uh, bug in uh, pneumococcal disease is uh, streptococcus pneumoniae, and streptococcus pneumonia worldwide has no resistance problem. It's an important bug, but it can be treated by penicillin uh, therapy uh, without any problems. This is different in Staph aureus, medicillin-resistant Staph aureus uh, has been a major threat 10 years ago. Uh, the resistance patterns raised to about 20 to 70 percent all over the world. But from this time point on, a lot of infection control programs uh, had been started and resistance had been gone down. For example, in Germany, our top was 25%, and we are now down uh, to about 20%, and will, this is the expectation, uh, further drop down to 15%. Next slide. With regard to uh, MRSA, uh, it's, it's important uh, to talk about uh, the influence of MRSA on mortality, and uh, the next slide shows you an interesting study which compared uh, susceptible Staph aureus to MRSA in patients with uh, bloodstream infection. And uh, if you do not adjust mortality rates uh, for several uh, risk factors, it seems to be a higher mortality in the MRSA group. But uh, if you adjust it mainly for age and comorbidities, and one of the main comorbidities for Staph aureus is diabetes mellitus, uh, it comes down to absolutely the same patterns, next slide, of mortality uh, uh, for resistance and susceptible uh, Staph aureus. So mortality in Staph aureus is related 
uh, to the pathogenicity of the bug and not uh, to the resistance pattern. Another situation which is enterococcus. Enterococcus, uh, enterococcia bugs, which has not been thought to be very uh, uh, difficult to treat in the past, but now we have an increase in even uh, enterococcus fecalis resistance to ampicillin, as you can see here, also resistance uh, to aminoglycosides, and in addition, there is an increase of vancomycin-resistant enterococcus fetsum. Fecalis is a really pathogenic drug. Uh, however, with vancomycin treatment, it's normally uh, overcome, but this increase in vancomycin-resistant enterococcus fetsum is uh, threatening. We now have prevalence rates of about 15 to 20 minutes, and as you can see here on this slide, uh, there is a clear uh, impact of uh, fatsium resistance on outcome uh, of patients with septic infection. With this, I want to move to the gram-negative pathogens. If you look to the gram-negatives, the situation is totally different than it is uh, in gram-positive infection. We have three major uh, groups of gram-negative pathogens, the Enterobacteriaceae, which include coli and Klebsiella pneumoniae, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and the Actinetobacter species. I do not want to talk about Stenotrophomonas. Stenotrophomonas is not really pathogenic, and it does not play a major role in the treatment regimen. If you look to the Enterobacteriaceae, you see ESBL, penicillin and cephalosporin resistant broad spectrum beta lactamases, have an impact on uh, mortality, which has been shown in a number of studies. There is a doubling in mortality. However, ESBL mortality can be overcome by carbapenem use. The next slide demonstrates you the increase in carbapenem resistance worldwide which is because of uh, the overuse of carbapenemans, and it's quite clear that there is a three to four-fold uh, increase in mortality in patients with carbapenemin-producing uh, enterobacteriaceae. And this is not only a problem in southern Europe now, it's a problem in all of the Asian countries, a main problem in the Arabian world, and an increasing problem in the United States and in South America, and here the data about the mortality. The next slide moves on to Pseudomonas aeruginosa. There is an increase in mortality of uh, patients with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is strongly correlated with an increase in Pseudomonas resistance, and we are now up to about 20 to 30 percent uh, of uh, so-called multi-drug resistance, which means resistance to all the main uh, Pseudomonas antibiotics, which is um, uh, Piperacillin, Tazobactam, the Cephalosporins, and the Carbapenems. And 
here uh, a study published by Mari Marvin Kollev's group and myself demonstrating that if there is an MDR, Pseudomonas uh, mortality is much higher than in susceptible Pseudomonas. The last problem is Akinetobacter baumannii. It's a, a huge problem. Next slide, please. In most of the Southern European countries and also in Asia and Africa, most of the Akinetobacter are multidrug resistant. Uh, there are only very few options to treat these uh, bugs and the mortality of Akinetobacter patients uh, is very high. Here is a resistance panel demonstrating that in whole Eastern and Southern Europe there is multidrug resistance and here is a study demonstrating the high mortality uh, with regard to these kind of bugs. Well, this all means there is an increasing resistance from mainly the uh, gram-negative pathogens. There's also a resistance problem in other circumstances for viral disease, uh, re resistant influenza strains, for fungal disease, uh, but also uh, for tuberculosis. I think the, the next slide demonstrates what can we do to overcome the problem of resistance? And there are a lot of issues which has to be raised. First, infection control. We need to improve with hygiene measurements. We need standardized hygiene programs. We need uh, to improve uh, in terms of vaccination. It's better to prevent than to treat. We should develop newer new diagnostic tools for early diagnostics and guided treatment. We need new antibiotics, but also uh, go straight on with antibiotic stewardship programs. And at the end, we need non-antibiotic uh, uh, treatment, which means uh, treatments which are directly influencing the inflammatory response, not to stop but to modulate inflammatory response uh, to overcome the high pro-inflammatory burden in sepsis. Thank you very much for your attendance, and I'm open for questions. A question I have is, um, we are all to blame for antimicrobial resistance. Um, we have all inappropriately prescribed antibiotics, um, and I think that is every clinician in the world, and never mind the poultry industry and, and, and the animal farming industry and things like that. I have a question. Is that um, should we be treating non-life-threatening infection at all? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, if, you, if you look to very old studies, studies in the pre-antibiotic area for community-acquired pneumonia, uh, and the last uh, randomized control trial, a, a sulfonamide versus placebo, was published by Davis in the Lancet in 1938. Mortality in the placebo group is about 30%, and mortality in the treatment group is 8%. So, yes, antibiotics help, but they on, only help uh, for bacterial infection and uh, what we need is a better possibility, better diagnostic tests to identify patients who are really uh, uh, 
on bacterial infection. I do think a risk of antibiotic stewardship is uh, to avoid antibiotic treatment also for patients who needed it, and this is, is not a wise decision. So we, we need a better uh, possibility to stratify better biomarkers. To be honest, I think Antibiotic treatment in the ambulatory setting, uh, in the uh, outpatient setting, and also in veterinary medicine is a much bigger problem than antibiotic overuse on the intensive care unit. One other thing is that um, the world is becoming a very small place. I mean, you're sitting 16,000 kilometers away from me. Luckily, you can't touch me. But mm -hmm. with, with, with um, increased airline traffic and migrational workforces, especially, for example, in the Middle East from India and China and also from Africa into Europe, etc. Um, who should take responsibility for this? I know that, for example, in Sweden, if you travel to high-risk countries, you get a perineal swab and a nasal swab when you leave Sweden and you also get one when you return. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that is obviously something that a very affluent country can do. Um, but, but, but do you have any... How are we going to stem this tide of antimicrobial resistance? I think the answer to that is we won't, but um, how can we contain it best, do you think? Yeah, I think we won't. First, you are right. There is globalization of resistance, and here in Germany uh, we, we see it with all the refugees coming in through, uh, during the last years, and mainly we have a dramatic increase in tuberculosis cases and in uh, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. Uh, you can try to control. You need surveillance uh, programs for uh, people coming in. We need to establish better surveillance programs uh, for the hospitals. However, this will not uh, help to solve the problem in total. So, as ever, um, the problems of a globalized world uh, can only be solved uh, by influencing uh, the countries where the resistance rate is uh, sky high. So you need uh, better healthcare policy in India, in most of the African countries, in South America. And we in the Western world, uh, we, we had to be aware that we will uh, come in, in huge problems when we are not willing to support uh, the healthcare systems in uh, the countries the people are coming from. Okay, just um, a quick question that's popped up here is, is there any role of nebulized colistin in treating multidrug-resistant acinetobacter ventilator-associated pneumonia? Yeah, that's, that's a Nobel Prize question. If you look <laughs> to the new, of the new, uh, to the new American uh, Thoracic Society guidelines, just published in Clinical Infectious Disease, they do not recommend inhaled antibiotics, no inhaled antibiotic, even not inhaled cholestine. And the reason is there's absolutely no evidence. Everything what we know is out of observational studies, very weak quality, and uh, the results are very controversial. However, I, I think inhaled antibiotics, the rationale behind be inhaled antibiotics is a very good one because it's better to increase antibiotic concentration 
in the organ which is sick and not to have systemic exposure. But uh, we need better studies looking what is the ideal device. Device is very uh, important. And uh, what is the right patient. All right, great. Listen, uh, Tobias, I want to thank you very much for your contribution. Um, we're going to have to go on to our next speaker. Thank you very much. Um, next, I would like to introduce Dr. Thierry Calandra from Lausanne in Switzerland. Um, Thierry is a professor of medicine and chairman of the Department of Medicine and head of Infectious Disease Center uh, Services sorry, um, at the Centre Hospitalier Universitaire Vaudois in Lausanne. I hope I said that right. Um, he graduated from Lausanne and then went to Utrecht in, uh, in the Netherlands. Um, his research interests are innate immunity, sepsis, bacterial and fungal infections, and the intensive care unit and immunocompromised hosts. That's quite a lot. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Calandra has served as a member of uh, many medical societies, including the American Society for Microbiology, the Infectious Disease Society of America, and the European Society for Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. I'd like to uh, welcome Terry. Thank you. Over to you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's a great pleasure to uh, be with you today to uh, discuss within the next uh, 10 minutes or so the topics of antifungal therapy. I will do that and limit that to uh, two areas. Uh, of course, there is a wide spectrum of uh, diseases and agents. I will primarily focus on invasive candidiasis that accounts for about 80 to 90 percent of invasive mycosis and uh, then uh, briefly discuss towards the end invasive aspergillosis that accounts for about 5 to 15 percent. And these are the leading uh, fungal uh, pathogens in the ICU. Uh, I have uh, to disclose some uh, relationship with uh, industry for research grant consultant and speakers bureau related to Astella Spazilea, Cubist, uh, MSD, and Novartis. Now, if we uh, address the issue of endocrine fungal therapy and invasive mycosis, we have basically four classes of antifungal agents. I'll start with the echinocandin, three members in the family, caspofungin, mecafungin, and adelofungin. The azole is a bit larger family. Uh, there was first uh, in the 90s ketoconazole and intraconazole, followed by the uh, more recent triazole, fluconazole, voriconazole, posiconazole, and isobuconazole, and I'm going to address these two families uh, a bit more uh, soon. We still have the polyenes, uh, amphotericin B, uh, that can be uh, used as deoxycholate, the old formulation or the various lipid formulation, and we can combine these agents with flucytosine. Uh, if we looked uh, into echinocandins, these are lipopeptides. I mentioned the three members of their family. The mode of action in the inhibition of the cell wall synthesis, and they target the beta-D-leukin synthase. So in terms of the antifungal activity, uh, it's covering yeast and molds. The yeast are, as we said, we'll talk about candida, the albicans and non-albicans. There is no cross-resistance to azole, and these agents are fungicidal. 
For mold, they cover Aspergillus. They do not, uh, are not active against zygomycetes. And uh, also some interesting aspects, they uh, target also Pneumocystis girovecci. They are not active against cryptococci. They require IV administration. Uh, we have no oral formulation, and they are well tolerated uh, overall in, in terms of liver and uh, renal dysfunction. If we now move on to triazoles, I mentioned the family. The target is different. This is the inhibition of ergosterol synthesis, and their spectrum of activity uh, encompass uh, candida and cryptococci and moles, but they are various activity. As you well know, fluconazole is not active against mold, and we have various activity against zygomycetes, itraconazole has some slight activity, voriconazole is not active against zygomycetes, whereas posiconazole and the most recent one, isovuconazole, are uh, active. I'm not going to talk about endemic fungi, and I said initially, uh, they are available as IV and oral formulation. The metabolism goes through the CYP450, and there is the drug uh, interaction that uh, is uh, significant for that class of antifungal agents. Now, if we move on now to uh, invasive candidiasis, uh, first look at prophylaxis and preemptive therapy. There has been about seven uh, recent clinical trials focusing on various groups of patients. In uh, a study that was performed by uh, Egiman uh, in, in Zurich and Lausanne, it was targeting uh, candida peritonitis uh, compared to placebo fluconazole reduced in this high-risk uh, patient population the incidence of invasive peritonitis and intra-abdominal candidiasis. The recent trial by Nitsch uh, et al., uh, in peritonitis patients following uh, either acquired in the community or nosocomial requiring surgery and requiring ICU admission, the endpoint was invasive fungal infection, and mycophungin, one of the echinocandin, was not shown to be superior to placebo in that study with an incidence of infection about 11% and 9%. There has been in the ICU, both in medical and surgical ICU, uh, two studies by Pelz et al. and Garbino et al. showing prevention of candida infection with fluconazole. In the Garbino studies, this was prevention of bloodstream infection and not overall uh, invasive candidiasis. Three studies in preterm infants. Uh, two of them showed uh, protection with fluconazole for invasive fungal infection. The latest by Benjamin et al. was somewhat different uh, endpoints, composite endpoints didn't uh, show uh, an activity. Now, if we move on to therapy, uh, I'll address what has been recently published in guidelines. The two main ones are the guidelines published by the European Society of Clinical Microbiology in Infectious Disease in 2012. The lead author were Oliver Connolly and Andrew Ullman. And the uh, most recent one, uh, the lead author was Peter Pappas for the Infectious Disease Society of America, uh, has been published uh, in CID uh, this year, a few weeks ago. So I will uh, target the most recent one, the IDSA. 
So what are the recommendations for invasive candidiasis? Ecanocandin are recommended as initial therapy. Uh, as alternative therapy, fluconazole. However, some limitation here, uh, the patient should not be critically ill. It should be uh, with uh, fluconazole-sensitive uh, uh, species. And as another alternative, lipid formulation of enfotericin B. All of these uh, recommendations are strong, and there is high quality of evidence to support that. Uh, regarding ecanocandins, there is a very important study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine about 10 years ago by Annette Reboli and colleagues, which showed that uh, there was a superiority of anidula fungin compared to fluconazole in terms of candidemia in 261 uh, patients. There was superiority at the end of IV therapy about 15% increased response rate, also at two weeks uh, follow-up. And uh, there was still numerically, but it was not statistically significant at six weeks. So this is an important study that showed that ecanocandin, my reading of that, was uh, superior, although it was published as non-inferior to uh, azole. So that's the study that supports the strong recommendation for Ecanocandin. And one of the facts that was important in that study, if you take uh, candida albicans, ecanocandin here, anudular fungin, clear the bloodstream in a medium of two days compared to five days with fluconazole. So fungicidal, faster clearance compared to fungistatic uh, fluconazole. Uh, definitely an important study. How can we uh, transit step down later on? According to the IDSA, uh, we can step down for either uh, ecanocandin or amphotericin B preparation to fluconazole if the patient in clinic is stable, if the isolates, of course, is susceptible to fluconazole, and uh, preferably is the uh, daily blood culture turned out to be negative. That's a strong recommendation with uh, moderate uh, quality of uh, evidence. Now, if we go into species, if we focus on glabrata, which is an amploid uh, microorganisms, uh, the recommendation is to use higher doses of fluconazole 800 milligram uh, daily or uh, voriconazole 2 to 300 uh, twice daily in patients, of course, with susceptible uh, organisms. It's a strong recommendation, but the evidence in terms of supporting data is of low quality here. So these are the uh, main uh, aspects uh, for that. Regarding voriconazole, there has been a very nice study in uh, Lancet showing that voriconazole is effective for candidemia. But the panels of the IDSA felt there was uh, very little advantage over fluconazole in terms of initial uh, therapy, and there was uh, moderate quality of evidence to support that. We could discuss at length what to do with cent central venous uh, catheter. The recommendation is to remove it. This is based on a nice study by David Endis at the patient level looking at seven uh, randomized controlled trials that suggested that the patient's uh, outcome was improved if the catheter was removed. But uh, not everybody agrees about that. 
there may be some uh, biases in terms of the analysis, and there is a moderate quality of evidence for that. So how do I practice uh, medicine? Uh, if uh, I'm called by the microbiologist that there is suspected candidemia, I start off uh, empirically as well with an echinocandin. Once I have uh, micro data uh, suggesting that uh, there is efficacy against uh, azole, be it fluconazole or voriconazole, and the patient is doing fine, I step down to fluconazole. Why am I using ecanocandin? Uh, first line, this is because of their broad spectrum of activity, albicans and non-albicans uh, species, fungicidal, clinical efficacy, and safe. Now, within the last minutes, let's turn to uh, invasive aspergillosis. As I said, this accounts for about 5 to 15% of uh, invasive mycosis. High-risk patients, we are primarily dealing here with neutropenic patients, patients with hematological malignancies, and in particularly allergenic hematopoietic stem cell uh, transplantation. Intermediate risk, particularly of importance for the ICU, COPD patients, those patients receiving steroids, therapy, and various immunosuppressive uh, agents, and also solid organ transplant patient, particularly lung. Here are the uh, most recent uh, available online IDSA guidelines. The lead author was Tom Patterson, showing that triazoles remain the preferred agent for the treatment and prevention of invasive aspergillosis. Uh, there is drug interactions, and we should uh, highlight, and this is what I do uh, when I practice medicine, I do therapeutic drug monitoring to uh, make sure when I'm dealing with severe infection, I'm reaching high levels, and this has been uh, a problem with some uh, formulations uh, in the past. Amphotericin B, the polyenes, remain uh, as an alternative to voriconazole, Echinocandin, however, are, have been used for salvage therapy, not as monotherapy, but in combination with other antifungal agents. For combination therapy, uh, voriconazole and echinocandin in selected patients with uh, invasive pulmonary infections. Now, I'll move uh, to uh, two studies that are quite interesting. First of all, the most recent azole, isobuconazole versus voriconazole that has been uh, published in the uh, Lancet. Uh, the lead author is Johan Martens. This uh, study was a phase three double blind uh, comparative uh, study between the two uh, agents. It including uh, 527 uh, patients and showed overall that isovuconazole was non-inferior to uh, the uh, voriconazole. Uh, this is a very important study. In terms of side effect, it seems that uh, isovuconazole was better tolerated than voriconazole, so a very important recent uh, study. Uh, in terms of combination, one study to mention, this is the study published by Kieran Moore and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine a bit more than uh, a year ago, 
that compare voriconazole with uh, anidulafungin, uh, compared to voriconazole and placebo. The primary endpoint was uh, mortality at uh, week six, and it was 19.3% in the combination therapy versus 27.5% in voriconazole. This didn't completely reach uh, statistical significance. There was a trend, 0.087, in favor of combination therapy in a post hoc analysis in subgroups associated uh, with uh, subgroups of characteristics that were important for outcome, it reached statistical significance 0.037. So an interesting study suggesting that uh, there might be a trend, but it didn't reach uh, statistical significance. So in conclusion, for invasive candidiasis, Fluconazole has been shown in uh, high-risk patients, surgical patients with intra-abdominal uh, conditions predisposing them to uh, invasive intra-abdominal infection and ICU patients to prevent the onset of candidiasis. There are relatively few data on preemptive and empirical therapy. The IDSA guidelines, as I said, recommend uh, ekinocandin as first line, liposomal amphotericin B or fluconazole an alternative, and triazole for step-down therapy. For invasive aspergillosis, triazole remains the agents of choice. Liposomal and deoxycholate formulation are an alternative. e salvage therapy. In very severe cases, uh, you may uh, combine uh, voriconazole and in echinocandine. And with that, I thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Terry, for that. Um, there's a couple of uh, questions come through from the audience. Um, I'll try and combine a couple of them. First of all, um, is there any recommendation of using scoring systems to weed out patients at high risk of candida infections like the candida score? And a similar question with uh, uh, aspergillus being more and more recognized in immunocompetent uh, compromised patients, is any chance to identify patients at risk better? Biomarkers, question mark. So just the Canada score? Yes, uh, two very important questions. Regarding uh, Canada score, there, has been, uh, there have been various scores. Uh, the Canada score itself uh, is a very simple one uh, proposed by our, our Spanish colleagues uh, based on, on three parameters. It has been shown to uh, be uh, associated with increasing points, uh, with increasing mortality. Um, in various kinds of uh, studies that looked uh, for it, uh, the negative predictive value, as it has been the case for uh, various uh, scores, has been very high, so you can rule it out. For ruling it in, uh, the uh, predictive, uh, positive predictive value has been somewhat lower. And the same thing for the score proposed by the mycosis study group. Uh, Louis Ostrowski Teichner has been a lead author in that, once again showing uh, excellent negative predictive value. Uh, in terms of positive predictive value, depending upon the studies, it's around 50-60%, so still a, a gap to uh, fill up uh, in terms of this score. Various other uh, score, the PAFI2 score, the DuPont score for intra-abdominal uh, infections, uh, 
we need to do more and perhaps combine these score with genetic factors and, and other biomarkers to answer your uh, second questions. Uh, yes, they are. Galactomannan for uh, aspergillosis. Uh, both in bloodstream as well as in uh, some fluids like BAL that are uh, shown to be uh, useful. Uh, Beta-D-glucan. Beta-D-glucan has uh, been shown to be of uh, interest both for candidiasis as well as for aspergillosis. Uh, some reviews have shown uh, sensitivity and uh, specificity in the range of uh, 60 to 80 percent, so uh, we use it. Uh, Galactomannan uh, for aspergillosis. Uh, we tend to use also manan and anti-manan, although the level of recommendation is a bit lower. Manan antigenemia is positive around the time of bloodstream dissemination, and then you, you have the increase in the antibody response. This has been shown of some value in neutropenic cancer patients uh, and patients with hematological malignancies. Um, so this is what I would say uh, at the present times in terms of the most commonly used biomarker. PCR uh, of interest, uh, Dr. Clancy's group in the U.S. showed very interesting data of PCR for deep-seated candidiasis uh, that was of uh, use. Uh, not better than anything else in terms of uh, candidemia, but uh, good for deep-seated candidiasis. Excellent. Just in three sentences, how would you treat candiduria in an ICU patient with a bladder catheter uh, who is immunocompromised? Well, this is the traditional uh, Catch-22 uh, question. I would say I would try to remove whenever possible, easy said, uh, more difficult to do, the folly uh, catheter. Uh, then I would rely on an azole uh, due to the fact that uh, the concentration in the urine would be higher. This is the issue about the echinocandin. The levels are very low. Uh, you can, uh, and there had been about 25 uh, case report for uh, pyelonephritis, of the use of uh, echinocandin and successful response rate, but for candiduria uh, and uh, UTI, we rely on uh, azole and try to remove catheter. All right. Listen, Thierry, merci beaucoup. Thank you very much for that. Um, My pleasure. Because we'll have discussion at the end. Um, moving along in this very interesting session quickly, um, I would like to introduce Simon Finfer, who is about 1,000 kilometers south of me in Sydney. Now, first of all, uh, Simon is one of the co-chairs of this meeting, and I just want to congratulate him and his team on the efforts to put this whole thing together. Um, Simon is a professorial fellow in critical care, uh, in the critical care and trauma division at the George Institute uh, in Sydney. He is a practicing uh, intensivist. Uh, at the Royal North Shore Hospital and director at the Sydney Adventist Hospital. Uh, he is an adjunct professor at the uh, Sydney University Medical School and past chair of the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society Clinical Trials Group. He is a treasurer of the International Sepsis Forum and uh, a member of the World Sepsis Day Steering Committee. He is also uh, widely published, uh, amongst other things, in the Oxford Textbook of Critical Care and also the Oxford Textbook of medicine, so I would like to 
welcome Simon, who is going to be talking to us about fluid resuscitation types of fluids. Simon, over to you. Uh, thank you, Mark. So we'll move on to something that's uh, a little simpler than that uh, Thierry was talking about, uh, which is which fluid should we give to people with sepsis. Um, I would like to start um, just by uh, declaring potential conflicts of interest because my institution, um, I have not received any personal money from pharmaceutical or fluid manufacturing companies, but my institution has received research funding and a refund of travel expenses which have generally been related to designing and conducting uh, randomized trials of fluid therapies. And as you can see, those are from a number of companies who produce fluids that compete with each other for this market. So there are controversies that we just don't seem to get uh, be able to get to go away, like crystalloid or colloid, which should we use? And more recently, um, we have a fair bit of evidence, um, both from observational data and from randomized trials, that pose the question of whether we should use buffered crystalloid or balanced salt solutions rather than saline. Um, a great deal of discussion and uh, a good amount of evidence on whether hydroxyethyl starch is a safe fluid to give to human beings. And uh, still not really resolved is whether albumin has a role. So I'll review some of the um, data relating to those. Now, a little tiny little bit of physiology that we've over the years, a lot of what we've done with fluids have been based on experiments, um, the theories of, of Stalin from many, many, many years ago. And we now know a little bit more about the vasculature and how it behaves and how it behaves in sepsis. And um, there was a very good uh, paper describing the endothelial glycocalyx layer, which is a, a layer of glycoproteins and proteoglycans that lies inside the endothelial uh, layer of the vasculature. And the interesting thing about this is that in health it's intact and it means that the, the fluid that is actually in contact with the endothelial cell is almost completely protein free. And that's, if you think about that, has some important implications in terms of how we think larger molecules might influence fluid transition because most the fluid that leaks out of capillaries doesn't get reabsorbed, as was once thought, but actually returns via the lymph. In, in um, inflammatory states, and obviously sepsis is the classical inflammatory state, the glycocalyx is damaged. And in that situation, proteins that are next to the endothelial cell and in fact leak out through the damaged uh, glycocalyx and as do other molecules and fluid go with it. So how the vasculature behaves in sepsis as we've all observed clinically is different from how it observes it behaves in health. But the theory of the glycocalyx goes a long way to explain why we have observed in blinded trials that have compared crystalloid and colloid solutions that what we have all been taught over many, many years that you need to give three liters of crystalloid to get the same intravascular volume expansion as a liter of colloid is wrong. Uh, the randomized trials, especially the blinded ones where people don't know what they're giving and they give to an endpoint, 
they have demonstrated that actually you need about 1.4 liters of crystalloid to every liter of colloid. So the volume sparing of colloids is a lot less than it would theoretically be the case. And that is explained, uh, very well explained, by this theory of the glycocalyx. So the crystalloid versus colloid um, trials, and this is a session on evidence-based sepsis care, so I'm going to promote a view that is supported by data from large, robust, randomized controlled trials. So comparing crystalloids and colloids, um, obviously the, the SAFE study, which we in Australia and New Zealand conducted comparing saline and albumin and found equivalent outcomes in a 7,000-patient study, and also uh, then the CHEST study, again 7,000 patients that compared saline with hydroxyethyl starch and did not find a beneficial effect of the colloid solution. And other studies, and I'll talk about the uh, 6S study conducted by the Scandinavians in a minute. Um, they are the data, and there are very nice meta-analyses put together by the Cochrane Group every few years, constantly show neutrality, that colloids do not have a beneficial effect in the overall population, or they favor crystalloids. And so current guidelines are that we should use, certainly use crystalloids as our first-line fluid therapy. There was, of course, the crystal trial, which produced a slightly different result. Um, but even so, when one takes the totality of the evidence, I think if you have a smaller trial that comes later, it cannot overwhelm the preceding larger blinded trials, and crystal was unblinded. Um, then even the totality of the data tells us that we should be using crystallite as our first-line therapy. Now, there are many crystalloids. Obviously, the original description of what was a crystalloid was a substance that, when it was evaporated, left behind a crystalline solution. So even the glucose solutions would be classified as crystalloids by that definition. I'm not going to talk about glucose solutions at all because uh, they really don't have a role um, in fluid resuscitation of patients with sepsis. So we're coming down to the question of whether the fluid that has traditionally been used most, which is normal saline, which has a very unphysiologically high chloride concentration, is the one we should still be using. There's a lot of observational data. Um, Ronaldo Belomo and his colleagues in Melbourne, in Australia, uh, did a study, a before and after study, using historical uh, control data where they removed chloride-containing um, fluids, normal saline, hemac cell, gelatin solution, the high chloride, removed 4% albumin, which is essentially in saline, and replaced it with 20% albumin. And they reported a, that changing from what they called a chloride liberal to a chloride restrictive strategy reduced uh, acute kidney injury um, and reduced uh, the number of patients who were treated with renal replacement therapy. And similar data has come um, largely from Andy Shaw's group in the USA looking at large um, data sets, uh, not specifically collecting data from individual patients, but generally looking at administrative data sets, analyzing thousands and thousands of patients and concluding that patients who receive only balanced salt solutions uh, have a better outcome.
The only um, really robust trial data that currently exists is that from the split study led by Paul Young in New Zealand. And this was a, an interesting study um, because it was a cluster crossover trial in which four um, sites in New Zealand, four hospitals intensive care units, were randomly assigned to use either only saline or only plasma light, which is a balanced salt solution. Um, and they were then they were randomized for a period to use one fluid blinded, and then they were swapped over to the other fluid again blinded, and then they swapped back again, and then they swapped back a, a third time. So this allows the intensive care units to act as their own controls. And the the, the results of that study, which was conducted as a pilot study to see if we should do a larger trial in Australia and New Zealand, um, did not support the observational data that there was a significant effect on kidney injury. However, the majority of patients were post-operative short-stay patients who re received relatively small amounts of fluid. And whilst there was a mortality benefit in favor of the balanced salt solution, the plasmalite, the trial was too small and was not designed to look at that. Yeah, as I said, it was a pilot study for a larger trial and on the basis of the data from that study, which did show a uh, suggestion of a mortality benefit, uh, we are conducting a, a, a trial called PLUS, which is an 8,800 patient, individual patient randomized trial, which should start recruiting in a couple of months. It will take three years to recruit. At the same time, the, um, the Brazilian Research and Intensive Care Network, BricNet, um, are are now funded and supported to, uh, to do a very similar trial of plasmalite versus saline in Brazil. They have over 100 intensive care units involved and plan to recruit 11,000 patients. And we're talking to each other so we will be able to combine those data after the event by harmonizing all our definitions, etc. So we will have a, uh, two studies that look at that question, which is very important and uh, close on 20,000 patient database to go into a, a meta-analysis. So that question is still a little bit up in the air, and we should be able to provide very robust data about that soon. What we do know from looking at data we conducted after we did the SAFE study, we conducted a study called SAFE TRIPS, which was translation of research into practice, and we collected data from 500-odd intensive care units around the world and recorded what fluid they were actually giving to the patients. And at that time, it was more colloid than crystalloid. Um, and our, um, hydroxyethyl starch was the most common colloid given. Saline was the next most common fluid. We've repeated that exercise led by Naomi Hammond at the George Institute in 2013. And the data that has been coming out has clearly changed practice. There's increasing crystalloid use. There's increasing use of balanced salt solutions. Um, and balanced salt solutions have increased as a percentage of the crystalloid use from 20% to 65%. So there has been a shift in practice, some of which is supported by data uh, from robust trials and some of which is not. Now, I've said we should use crystalloids as our first-line fluid, and obviously we're all aware that there are some patients that we appear to be pouring fluid into and they're not improving, and what do we do then? Do we, do we give them a colloid? 
Well, one thing you shouldn't do is give them hydroxyethyl starch. There's a large body of data that um, from studies uh, in the, the hemodynamic support of people who are going to be kidney donors that shows that if they receive starch, the kidneys don't work so well when they're transplanted. Frederick Shortgun did a study uh, comparing hemoxyl and starch um, a long time ago, published in the, in the Lancet that, that said that starch was harmful and caused acute kidney injury and people needed dialysis. And as Perna's study, which specifically looked at patients with severe sepsis and septic shock, comparing hydroxyethyl starch suspended in ringer's acetate against ringer's acetate demonstrated a very significant increase in the risk of death, with one extra death occurring for each 13 patients given starch. So I th the recommendations and the regulators, the FDA and most other regulatory bodies, have now said you should definitely not give starch to people with sepsis. Whether you should give it to anyone else or not is a, a mute question. Personally, I don't think you should, um, but uh, that is my opinion that's not shared by everybody. Um, so the other colloid that um, has been investigated quite extensively is albumin. And uh, the, in the SAFE study, there was a suggestion of a beneficial effect in the subgroup of patients who had severe sepsis, although this was a little below the traditional statistical significance. And my colleague Anthony Delaney and I published a meta-analysis in 2011 looking at all the trials that had compared uh, albumin with another fluid regimen and there was a just statistically significant benefit from albumin. However, the caveat to that is that a lot of the data from that came from some pilot studies being conducted in Africa by Kath Maitland in preparation for the FEAST trial. And these pilot studies all showed that albumin, use of albumin in children with sepsis was beneficial. And the FEAST study looked at, um, had uh, randomization to receive either boluses of fluid or no boluses of fluid in over 3,000 African children with severe infection and impaired perfusion, what we would call septic shock. And the, fluid patient, the, the children who received fluid boluses had an increased risk of death. Now, this was conducted in an environment where there was no intensive care units, no ventilation, no vasopressor support, and so whether those data can be translated into practice where I work, we're not sure. I'm, there may be many people listening to this and listen to the podcast later who work in an environment like Kath Maitland's where this, these data would apply. And because the data from, in the meta-analysis from her, her pilot studies are not backed up by those data, I'm not sure uh, if we conducted the meta-analysis now that would... Uh, stand up to scrutiny. So what are the recommendations currently for fluid therapy in sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock? I would agree with the current surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. They're currently being revised, of course, and we don't know what the conclusion of the revision will be. But they recommended that crystalloids be used for the initial fluid of choice, and I think at the moment you could use either um, normal saline or a balanced salt solution um, plasmalite is the one for which there is the best data currently, um, and 
when we get the results of the, the PLUST and the BASICS trial from Brazil, we'll be able to refine that recommendation. They recommend against the use of hydroxyethyl starch, which of course I agree with, and suggest that the use of, of albumin um, for patients who receive, require substantial amounts of crystalloid but don't recover, I think is also a reasonable recommendation. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, <clears throat> quick question. How many, what volume of crystalloids before you change over to albumin? Um, I think that's how long is a piece of string. Um, clearly, there's a time component to that as well. And we don't just give fluid um, individually. I think uh, Daniel uh, DeBacker is going to address the whole of cardiovascular support in the talk after next. Um, because we give, at the same time that we're giving fluids, certainly in our practice, we would have a very, move to very early use of vasopressor support as well. Um, how, I think if, you know, the, the, the recommendations of giving 30 mils per kilo, which would be approximately two to two and a half liters, um, I, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing. If you're giving that quickly and seeing no response and all the patient's parameters are otherwise going in the wrong direction, then to um, give some albumin if it's available to you and affordable uh, is not an unreasonable thing to do. But it's done um, with many, many other interventions are going on at the same time. These patients are unstable uh, and therefore you well, exactly how much fluid you decide to give before switching will depend on other matters as well. All right, Simon, thank you very much. Uh, we'll need to move on from there. Um, there'll be a couple of questions at the end, I'm sure. Okay. Our next speaker is uh, Anders Perner, who is, I believe, sitting in Copenhagen, um, who uh, will be talking to us about wet or dry. Now, Anders is a uh, senior staff specialist and professor in intensive care medicine at the University of Copenhagen and an honorary professor of the George Institute in Sydney. Um, his main focus is on clinical research in critically ill patients, and he chairs the Danish National Center for Research in Intensive Care and the Scandinavian, uh, Scandinavian Clinical Care Trials Group. He was chaired to the 6S and the TRIST trial, um, which were landmark studies. His ongoing research continues along <clears throat> this track, uh, frequent uh, interventions given to critically ill patients for which there are doubts about the balance of benefit and harm. So I'd like to welcome Anders, who will be talking to us about wet or dry. Thank you for, for the invite, and thank you for this uh, Excellent Congress. Um, I have a few conflicts of interest. Uh, my unit receives uh, research support from Fusinus Carabesius Albiang and Fiang, who produces interventions uh, giving for circulatory support in, uh, in sepsis. So my title was Fluid Resuscitation, Wet or Dry. Um, I have a fairly short agenda because the amount of uh, high-quality data in this area is very limited. So first, a few words about the guideline, uh, then I'll present the better of uh, the indirect evidence, and, and I'll show you some uh, new trial uh, data. So the surviving sepsis campaign guideline on fluid volumes is split in two. Um, first, there is a recommendation on initial fluid therapy, uh, recommending a minimum of 30 ml per kilo of crystalloids 
uh, and adding to that more rapid administration and greater amount may be needed in some patients. Uh, so a fixed uh, volume first and then potentially more fluid to, uh, to some patients, um, which I think together adds up to a fairly uh, liberal uh, recommendation uh, for fluids. The second part is uh, on the continuous fluid administration where it's suggested to continue as long as there is uh, hemodynamic improvement either based on dynamic or static variables. This is ungraded, meaning uh, no evidence to support this. Uh, but again, I, I think it's fair to say that, that this uh, suggestion also favors uh, more liberal versus uh, restrictive um, fluid resuscitation and, and sepsis. I think that the overall challenge um, is that there is no indirect evidence um, supporting uh, these recommendations. Um, and as we'll see, this is a potential problem. As promised, I'll cover the better parts of uh, the indirect evidence. Um, this is a large trial, the so-called FACT trial, uh, published in the journal uh, almost 10 years ago, uh, comparing liberal versus uh, conservative fluids management strategies in patients with acute lung injury uh, admitted to ICUs in North America. Um, the evidence is indirect because uh, not all of these patients had sepsis. Uh, they were acute lung injury patients, and they were included only after hemodynamic stabilization, so it's not a resuscitation trial. Uh, I won't show the, the protocol because it was um, very uh, complex, but it had components mainly on uh, restricting fluid input, but also giving diuretics and, and mainly furosemide. Um, the primary outcome was death at 60 days, did not differ between two groups, even though the point estimate favored the conservative uh, strategy. Some of the secondary endpoints um, favored the conservative strategy by statistical significance, being ventilatory free days, uh, and days um, out of ICU in the first week and in, in uh, 28 days. As already alluded to by Simon, there's uh, another piece of indirect evidence which in itself is excellent, but the, it's indirect because, as Simon said, it was uh, done in African children with severe infection and it's in sub-Saharan Africa, so settings without uh, advanced care. Uh, the FEAST trial has said no bolus versus either albumin or uh, saline boluses in more than 3,000 kids. And as you s saw already, um, increased mortality in both fluid bolus uh, groups compared to no fluid bolus. All these kids had fluid um, as a, uh, there was a maintenance protocol, so, so even the no bolus fluid had IV fluids running as uh, maintenance, but adding fluid boluses on top of that without abrumid or saline uh, appear to increase mortality. I've only found one systematic review covering um, 
this uh, topic uh, done by um, Dr. Mel Brain and Paul Merrick and, and their colleagues. Um, it's quite comprehensive, and there are actually a lot of studies included in, in this meta-analysis. Um, however, the, the inclusion of uh, trials and studies, uh, I think, is somewhat controversial because there's both trials and observational data. Uh, some of the trials are on fluid types uh, rather than fluid volumes, so the albumin trials uh, in sepsis uh, are there, uh, the safe studies there. Um, so it's a very good mixture of, of different designs and different interventions, actually. Um, however, adding this piece of evidence um, up indicates uh, a pronounced increased mortality with uh, fluid overload. Uh, but, but I think at least the, the uh, design and inclusion of studies in, in this uh, meta-analysis is somewhat controversial. As promised, uh, I'll show some uh, uh, new data that, um, that we have um, conducted, the, uh, the classic trial. Uh, it's in press in intensive care medicine and will be published uh, during the live 2016 conference in Milano, where the coordinating investigator, Peter Jotrup, will uh, present uh, the full trial data. I'll, I'll share um, a brief number part of it with you today. Uh, so done in, in um, nine Scandinavian ICUs, general ICUs, uh, through the Scandinavian Critical Care Trials Group and supported by Group Maiden Trial Unit, sponsored by public money. Uh, Classic is a multi-center randomized feasibility trial. Uh, as you'll see, the protocol is a bit complex, so we wanted to assess if this protocol was feasible at multiple sites. We included ICU patients uh, with septic shock fairly early on in their course, but they had had to receive 30 ml uh, per kilogram of fluid, so it's after the initial resuscitation and mainly challenges uh, the second part of the surviving sepsis campaign recommendation on ongoing fluid therapy in these patients. They were randomized to a protocol restricting resuscitation fluids or a protocol that aimed at standard care. Upon randomization, all patients had to receive uh, no adrenaline to maintain a mean arterial pressure above 65. And here are the, um, I'll go through the, the two uh, protocol arms, so first fluid restriction. Um, the idea was here to only allow clinicians to give fluids in the case of severe hyperperfusion as one of four markers of hyperperfusion, so lactate values above four, severe hypertension, low blood pressure in spite of noradrenaline infusion, modeling score of three or above, that's beyond the edge of the neck, uh, kneecap. Uh, and finally, severe oliguria, but only in the first two hours of the randomization. We didn't want clinicians to, to keep, keep on giving food to uh, patients with established acute kidney injury and severe oliguria. So food was not mandated uh, in the presence of these criteria, but could be given as 
250 to 500 ml of isotonic crystalloid boluses. This, the protocol aiming at standard care is, is mainly set up to look like the uh, ongoing uh, suggestion for fluid therapy in the surviving sepsis campaign. Guidelines being that isotonic crystalloids could be given as long as hemodynamic variables uh, improved and clinicians could use any variables uh, that they favored. In both groups, um, overt fluid losses uh, could be replaced, uh, but we uh, protocolized against the use of colloids, so no colloids used in either group uh, for circulatory impairment. Some results. First, the uh, trial flow. We assessed 200 patients, excluded 50 mainly for severe uh, kidney injury uh, or severe respiratory failure, randomized uh, 153, of whom 99% uh, were analyzed by intention to treat. Baseline characteristics, um, not too much of a difference between the two groups, even though there may be some baseline imbalance, as can be expected when you do a trial of um, 150 patients. Very sick patients, though. There were two co-primary outcome measures, being volumes of uh, resuscitation fluid, as this was a feasibility trial. So the first one, uh, volumes of resuscitation fluid in the first five days, median half a liter in the restriction group and two liters in the standard of care group, highly statistical significant. There's also an, an estimated mean difference um, given of uh, 1.2 liter. Um, then, I, then the uh, volumes of uh, fluid resuscitation given during the entire ICU stay after randomization, um, again, median 500 ml uh, in the fluid restriction group versus 2.2 liters median in the standard care group, uh, highly statistical significant. The, um, I think the, the uh, differences between these two groups are, are better depicted uh, by showing percentiles. Uh, and it may be that the largest effect of this protocol were in the um, upper and lower end of uh, of fluid use um, where 30% um, in the restrictive group never received resuscitation fluid. Um, and also in the higher end group, the highest 90 uh, percentile, it appears that uh, much more fluid was given in the standard group compared to the uh, fluid restriction group. As a feasibility trial, we had major protocol violations um, as a uh, secondary outcome measure, and there were a fair number of major protocol violations, uh, being that resuscitation fluid was given in the restrictive uh, arm uh, without the presence of any of the hyperperfusion criteria. So one third of patients uh, at some stage in ICU had a major protocol violation in this group, and it was mainly uh, extra resuscitation fluid given for uh, increasing vasopressor dose, uh, lactate, but not fulfilling the classic criteria, so lactate below four, uh, oliguria being oliguria beyond uh, the first two hours, and then a bit surprising, um, heart rate, which was not one of our criteria to give resuscitation fluid. 
Other secondary outcomes, there were no statistical significant difference in the total fluid input in ICU or in balances at day five or in the full ICU uh, stay, and there were no differences in the rates of serious adverse reactions being reactions to either fluids or noradrenaline. We had uh, some exploratory outcome measures, uh, death by 90 days, ischemic events in ICU, or worsening of acute kidney injury. Um, these are exploratory. We were not powered to show any effect on these outcomes, uh, but they all favored food restriction, um, and worsening of AKI did so with uh, statistical um, significance. So, uh, Half odds ratio for worsening of uh, AKI in the fluid restriction group as compared to the standard care group. Another exploratory outcome measure was uh, time to death uh, in the total observation period uh, of all patients. Uh, so some patients were followed up for the full trial period, which was uh, more than 350 days. No difference um, in time to death between the two groups. We assessed some uh, physiological parameters. These were not true outcome measures defined in the protocols, uh, but they were registered uh, mainly in the first 24 hours, and there appeared to be no difference in lactate levels, uh, noradrenaline doses, or urinary output uh, between the two groups in the first 24 hours. Um, after randomization. So the conclusion uh, of the classic trial, that is food restriction versus standard care, uh, resulted in less resuscitation fluid administered in the restriction group, uh, no apparent effect of physiological endpoints, uh, and the exploratory outcome suggested benefits from food restriction. And I think our take on this is that we need large-scale trial assessing the overall benefits and harms of probably different protocols of lower versus higher volumes of food resuscitation in, in septic shock. Uh, and we've put together a European consortium uh, trying to get funded for a very large trial um, in this topic. I presented these data on, on behalf of the classic trial group. I'm, uh, Deeply thankful to all of them, in particular the uh, coordinating investigator, Peter Yortrop, who will, as I said, present the, the um, full trial data in the clinical trial session at the LIVES uh, 2016 in Milan in October. Thank you. Thank you, Anders. question is, how dry is dry? Um, do you say, um, you, uh, do you tolerate creatinine increments of 50% or 100%? How, how do you gauge what is dry, and at what point in time do you, uh, how do you basically balance this with the use of vasoconstrictors? I mean, so, so the protocol was set up to, to allow vasopressor support to support the blood pressure for the given target uh, set by clinicians, a minimum of 65. So, so the, the fluid, were only to be given in the case of severe hyperperfusion uh, or may be given into it. It was not mandated. And creatinine levels were not uh, a, um, a uh, hyperperfusion uh, marker in our trial. 
so, so the renal marker was your oligoria, severe oligoria, actually below 0.1 milliliters per kilo, but as said, only in the first two hours because we didn't want drowning of, of patients uh, with established uh, AKI. Uh, so it was lactate, uh, severe, severe hypertension in, in spite of noradrenaline, uh, mottling, um, and oligoria alone in the first two hours. No other indication given in this protocol for fluid. And just quickly in a nutshell, what markers do you use to assess fluid responsiveness in patients with septic shock? Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, I still, so fluid responsiveness, in, in the most common thing that happens when I treat patients is that I, in case of severe, mark, severe hyperperfusion, I tend to try to give fluids, and, and then I reassess the markers that, I, uh, that was the indication to, uh, to fluids. So fluid responsiveness for me is mainly assessing effects after a 500cc bolus. Anders, thank you very much for that, uh, for that uh, presentation of the classic study and your opinion on wet and dry patients. Um, in the interest thank of you. time, what you're going to do, thank you, Anders. Um, we're going to have to move along, and I think we move across to uh, Brussels, where Daniel DeBacker um, is waiting to tell us about cardiocirculatory support. Now, Daniel DeBacker is uh, an, obviously an intensivist uh, in Brussels, and he's the head of the intensive care department at the CHIREC hospitals and um, also at the Free University of Brussels. His main fields of investigation are sepsis, organist function and support, circulatory failure, hemodynamic monitoring, uh, hepatosplanctic circulation and microcirculatory disorders. Um, Daniel is very well published and uh, is a reviewer for 30 journal articles, so we've got to be nice to him. And uh, he's currently the president of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Daniel, if I could hand over to you. So, um, good morning, at least from Brussels. Uh, good afternoon for some others uh, to the globe. Um, it's my pleasure to be here and to discuss this uh, cardiovascular support. Uh, why do we want to have some hemodynamic support? It's mostly uh, because we have seen from observational trials that basically some variables, hemodynamic variables, when altered, are really associated with a poor outcome. And among these, you can see here that the mean arterial pressure, uh, as well as a low SVU2, as well as a high CVP, and I say a high CVP meaning uh, arterial function, probably, is associated with a poor outcome. So um, do we wish to correct these variables? This is really what we will try to test at the bedside, and uh, at least we guess that in some conditions this may improve um, some tissue perfusion variables and maybe some um, more strong um, outcomes. Um, what about the use of fluids? We just talked about it. Um, there is no doubt that fluids can increase cardiac output and thus uh, tissue perfusion, but is there a role for fluids to correct hypotension? Well, this is much more challenge just because, indeed, as you can see from this 
reasoning here. When we give fruits, we increase catalytic output uh, on the left side, but you can see also that the increase in arterial pressure will depend on vascular tone. And because, of course, the vascular tone is decreased in sepsis, the increase in arterial pressure can be minimal even when there is a significant increase in cardiac output. So often we will need to give um, vasopressors to increase vascular tone very rapidly on. And once again, the variability in response to fluid is um, nicely demonstrated in these trials when you can see that some patients increase their blood pressure for a given increase in stroke volume, while others have absolutely no change in blood pressure. So the other question is, does the correction of hypertension with vasopressor affect tissue perfusion? And if yes, in which direction? Well, there the question is not well addressed in literature. We have a, a very few data showing that correction of severe hypertension improves tissue perfusion. Just because it's very difficult to do because you need to have baseline measurement when your patient is still very hypotensive and this is, of course, not always easy to perform. In this already uh, quite old trial, uh, and of course in a limited number of patients in septic shock, you can see that correcting severe hypotension with a mean arterial pressure of 50 to uh, something around 80 millimeters of mercury was associated with an increase in urine output, but also the next day in creatinine clearance. Uh, when do we need to introduce vasopressors? And this is in line with the question that was rose uh, to Simon Finfer a few minutes ago. Well, we need to get in on time. This is easy to say. But what is exactly getting on time? Well, we need probably not to wait too long. Because first, the early introduction of vasopressors may decrease later need of fluid just because you vasoconstrict the venous reservoir uh, that is usually expanded in sepsis uh, due to the dilation of um, uh, mesenteric veins and also capacitance veins. And so because you construct this, you need to give less fluid uh, to these patients. And this was nicely illustrated in this um, experimental trial uh, where you can see in uh, pink that uh, introduction of early, vasop early vasopressors here in our periphery um, was uh, associated with less requirement of fluids uh, to correct tissue perfusion, meaning blood pressure and catechol in these animals compared to just fluids alone in green or uh, late introduction of norepinephrine in yellow. Does this have some impact on outcome? Well, it may have, and at least uh, observational data suggests that the initial time uh, to um, delay to introduce norepinephrine, the longer this delay uh, uh, is associated with a higher mortality. Uh, however, we have to see that uh, in these patients, um, the severity of hypotension was really quite severe because mean arterial pressure drops uh, down to uh, 45, which is very low, and uh, so um, it sometimes lasted several hours before being corrected. But so obviously there could be a link between um, um, uh, introducing early vasopressors um, in, in, in open squares here um, and compared to a, a lower mortality in these patients. 
which big pressure target is also a very important aspect. And we have a few um, trials looking at this, and we have mostly this very important French multicentric trial looking at the 6570 versus 8085. And where you can see that, obviously, in these 800 patients with septic shock, there was no difference in survival rate. However, there was a very interesting aspect because uh, there are predefined analysis looking at patients with um, previous hypertensive patients. And in these patients, there was a lower incidence of acute kidney injury and lower necessity for renal replacement therapy uh, in these patients when randomized to high mean arterial pressure. However, in all patients, there were a high rate of arrhythmias and even, but not significant, increase in rate of acute myocardial infarction when randomized to higher MAP. So this probably explains the lack of difference between the two groups in terms of long-term survival. Also, we have to be quite careful that the hypothesis tested 65 to 70. But when you look at the, absolute, the true value uh, of uh, blood pressure, uh, sorry for this, uh, you can see that it was not really 65, 70, but it was more 73, 75 versus 80, 85. So we do not know exactly whether a patient randomized to 65, 70 would have a better or a worse outcome compared to the two uh, other targets that were tested in that trial. Also, we have to admit that there could be a higher individual variability. Here you can see renal perfusion, which was quite variable in these patients according to the level of blood pressure. Regarding the type of vasopressor, it's also quite uh, important to realize that the physiologic effect related to the balance between beta and alpha uh, variable can induce some difference um, in response to these um, vasopressors. For blood pressure, most will be quite equal, but cardiac output will be quite different between epinephrine and norepinephrine or even phenylephrine. In this large-scale randomized trial, we compared dopamine and norepinephrine as a first vasopressor agent for shock. And what we observed is that there were minimal difference in blood pressure. There were obviously a higher tachycardia associated with dopamine for, that lasted for two days compared to norepinephrine. And there were also uh, more arrhythmias in these patients uh, treated with dopamine compared to norepinephrine. Regarding uh, survival rate, there was uh, no significant difference, even though uh, the p-value was close to be significant, and there was, if anything, no benefit with dopamine. In um, uh, uh, aggregate analysis um, of all trials randomizing patients to dopamine and norepinephrine, there was then a significant effect with a better outcome when patients were randomized to norepinephrine compared to dopamine in septic shock. Looking at other um, vasopressors, epinephrine versus norepinephrine, you can see that the same dose gives exactly the same increase in blood pressure. However, if we look once again at other variables like our trait, there is a significant tachycardia associated with, uh, with epinephrine compared to norepinephrine. Whether this will be translated into some mortality difference need to be tested uh, in large-scale trials because there were no large-scale trials up to now looking at this effect. However, probably need to be cautious there. Vasopressin 
topic of non-adrenergic agents very promising. And in the vast trial, there was also no significant difference uh, globally, but still a trend that needs to be uh, probably considered. And especially when looking at subgroups, there was a subgroup of patients with lower severity that benefited from being randomized to vasopressin compared to norepinephrine. Once again, this needs to be confirmed, and the recent trial um, that was published in the JAMA did not uh, confirm this benefit from vasopressin, at least in terms of our survival. There may be some um, benefit in terms of kidney function, but once again, we need to see more data on this. So for vasopressors, primary correction of severe hypotension is mandated. The exact uh, blood pressure target still needs to be um, uh, defined, and we do not know exactly whether some benefit, some patient may benefit or not from higher blood pressure level. Adrenergic agents seem to be the first-line agents, and norepinephrine is still the first-choice agent, but vasopressin is promising, and we probably need a little bit more data before totally switching from one to the other one, but it can be considered as a good alternative at this stage. What about therapeutic support? We have less data for this, and the first aspect is that we need to think at what is exactly the indication for giving uh, uh, a therapeutic agent. And for this, this very good data, uh, looking at eco data, uh, echocardiographic data in patients with septic shock, and we can see that we have uh, quite a significant link between cardiac index and ejection fraction. However, if we look closely at these data, we see these patients here. Uh, with uh, obviously a low ejection fraction, but a very high cardiac index. And so these patients should not receive um, uh, agents because stimulating the heart is not a solution in these patients. The same is true for these patients with a low cardiac index, but a high ejection fraction, a good anatropic function. So please do not give the butamine or other, uh, other anatropic agents to these patients. The true patients that probably need to receive amplifications um, are these patients here in green who have a low cardiac index together with a low uh, ejection fraction. So we need to focus on these patients. When to give amplifications is probably when we have also signs of tissue hypoperfusion. And for this, uh, we probably need indeed to look at these. When we have no signs of tissue hypoperfusion, probably don't do anything. When we have signs of tissue hypoperfusion, then we have to look at cardiac output. Is it low or inadapted? If it is adapted, so we do not need to do something there. If it is inadapted or maladapted, then we need probably to, to give some antropic uh, simulation in these patients if um, the um, ejection fraction is low. And so we can give uh, the butamine, which has been shown indeed to improve the uh, ejection fraction in uh, these patients, uh, and also increase the cardiac output. However, we need to be quite cautious because we can see that uh, even though cardiac output increases, um, in some patients there was no increase in the stroke volume. And in these patients, even though the increase in cardiac output was quite similar, the increase in stroke volume was mostly due to the increase in heart rate 
and not an increase in the contractility. So probably in these patients, the butamine is not the right solution. So if we give anotrophications, it is very important to assess the response and understand why there is an increase in cardiac output and there need to be an improvement in the contractility and not only an increase in heart rate in these patients. An alternative may be levosimodon. Uh, levosimodon improves the uh, ejection function in these patients uh, randomized to levosimodon when the butamine was not effective. Um, but again, there was not only an improvement in ejection function, but also an improvement in, uh, in catechidics in these patients. We need also to be aware that this drug is somewhat vasodilating. So also the amount of fluid received by these patients was higher uh, in the levosimodon group compared to the butamine. We do not have long-term outcome data uh, with levosimodon. This will be soon available, uh, but uh, we still need to be quite cautious, of course, with this drug. And perhaps a very important aspect also to consider when we consider the use of vasopressors and antropication is that these are most useful in the early phase because when we go on for the stabilization phase, we then need to minimize complications and probably we need to think at roughly wean vasoactive agents and also, of course, achieve a negative fluid balance in these patients. And with this, I thank you for your attention. Oh, Daniel, that's a, uh, definitely a tour de force. Uh, thank you very much. Um, sorry to speed you along there. Um, quick question. Um, is there any data to support the use of phenylephrine in septic shock? No, very minimal. I mean, there are a few trials um, that were just looking at some um, variable of a tissue perfusion, and if anything, these were not very convincing for phenylephrine, showing some impairment of splanchnic perfusion with phenylephrine compared to norepinephrine. Uh, we really lack uh, data uh, for larger groups. Um, it can be used perhaps in association with another beta agent uh, like um, uh, isoproteranol, and this was done by the group of Claude Martin, but again in a very limited number of patients. So it's feasible, but is it safe or even safer than other alternatives? It needs to be uh, probably assessed. And I will be very cautious because there is a risk to decrease cardiac output in tissue perfusion because it is solely a alpha uh, agent. So maybe in some situation where there is a huge vasodilation and a very high cardiac output, it can be considered. But in many other situations where there is an impairment in cardiac function, uh, I would be more cautious. Okay, so we're not all lucky enough to be as uh, adept as ECHO as you are. So um, how would you and when would you add dobutamine as an inotropic agent together to norepinephrine if you can't have real-time echo or assess the heart very quickly? Well, this is really very uh, difficult. So uh, we need to have signs of uh, impaired cardiac function and that uh, it is not just an issue of uh, feeling the heart. Um, so if we are sure um, that the patient is um, adequately um, filled, meaning that he do not respond anymore uh, to a food recitation in these conditions, and that indeed we have signs of tissue hypoperfusion, 
Brazil, we may consider them to give uh, some anthropic support. If we do so, we need to assess the response to the anthropic simulation. Don't give it blindly. So even if you don't do eco, at least assess the response in terms of a decrease of lactate levels, re restoration of a urine output, and other signs. If you do not have any improvement there, probably is not a good solution to continue without assessment of cardiac function. If you assess cardiac function, then you can do something more, of course, with ECHO or with some other invasive measurements of cardiac uh, function, like uh, uh, the um, uh, transperimeter modulation and or the pulmonary catheter. Okay, great. Just uh, one last thing, because there are a lot of people who are currently uh, listening to this conversation who um, work in resource-poor environments, and um, I often get my nurses saying, what map do you want, what map do you want, and uh, they quite blindly, you know, readjust inotropes and vasopressors. So to me, the short answer to that is usually I want a, a patient who's mentating normally, who's passing more than half a mil per kilo of urine, uh, uh, per hour and who also has got warm peripheries. So that's sort of a simplified form, but um, anyway, that's that. I'm not going to go into swans and things like that um, because we sort of need to move on a little bit of time. So, Daniel, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Um, moving along. Um, this next speaker is uh, Luciano Gattinoni. I believe he would be sitting in Milan right now. Is going to be talking about respiratory failure. Luciano really um, doesn't need much of an introduction to the Intensive Care Forum. Um, he is a very well-published and well-known pianist um, and uh, has uh, his main interest obviously in respiratory intensive care. Um, he um, introduced the concept of uh, lung rest by using extracorporeal CO2 removal and um, we all know his work using thoracic CT and uh, his concept of the baby lung and lung recruitability. Um, he is a professor of many a department and has worked uh, internationally. He's uh, previously served as president of the it Italian National Society of Anesthesia, Analgesia, Resuscitation and Intensive Care and also the European Society of Intensive Care and also with the World Federation. Um, <clears throat> He is uh, an honorary member also of the German Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care, a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, and the list goes on and on, and I would refer you to his biography online. Luciano, welcome uh, to this uh, session, and uh, please feel free to tell us about therapy of respiratory failure in sepsis. Okay, thank you. Good morning to everybody. Well, in the next uh, 13 minutes, I will try to summarize uh, my talk about the therapy of respiratory failure. It's not very easy, but uh, let's see that the way I approach the problem, uh, I think first, with the respiratory support, we don't cure anybody. We just buy time uh, to assure the survival until uh, the cure of the basic disease, maybe an infection, maybe a pneumonia, maybe a sepsis, uh, uh, is uh, solved. So the problem uh, is to provide cure without uh, increasing uh, damages. And uh, I think that it's quite useful representation to imagine that all the damages we can do through the mechanical ventilation depends on the interaction of two things. One is what we do with the ventilator, 
And second, how is the lung of the patient and how can we treat the lung to make him more compliant with whatever respiratory treatment we introduce? I think the key point with the ventilator, you know that over the decades we have, uh, we started with the barotrauma, uh, then we went to the volotrauma, then we went to the biotrauma, then to atelectrauma, and looking sometimes to the pressure, sometimes to the volume, sometimes to the frequency, not very often to the frequency. Anyway, all of these variables, all the knob of the ventilator, affect the mechanical power that we deliver to the lung, which is the sum, is the product of, uh, of several things. That's it. We have tidal volume and PEEP, or excuse me, tidal volume and uh, the, the, now the, the last fashion is the, the driving pressure, which is the difference in the pressure between the plateau and the PEEP. And these are component, are power contributors. And then we have the PEEP, because the status of tension at the beginning of the inflation increases the mechanical power that we give to the lung times the frequency. This is usually neglected. Nobody cares if I have 20 of 30, but let's see I have a hammer and I give one shot once per minute, 10 per minute or 30 per minute, what do you prefer? This is the hammer, this is the number. All together, they give you the problem of uh, power. And this, uh, I think this will be published uh, very soon in intensive care, is uh, just a mathematical representation of the power, which is nothing else than uh, the motion equation times uh, the distortion of the line. That means times after the volume. We start with the PEEP, this is our rising starting point, then we start to inflate. And we have to, we deliver all this area, all this area is given to the lung. Of this area, about 20% is recovered into the elastic structures of the lung, and 80% is dissipated. Dissipated where? in the lung skeleton, which is done by the fibers out of the lung. All the molecules composing this, fi composing this fiber and all the proteoglycans may be broken if the power is excessive. And this is one of the very few things that we know for sure in intensive care that the tidal volume is extremely important. If you remember the motion equation, tidal volume enters with elastance as a component of the static pressure that we give to the lung. If we multiply for the distortion, the tidal volume means that the contribution of tidal volume with the mechanical power goes up at the square. That means if I double the tidal volume, the mechanical power increases four times. 
Okay, but this is, is not so important. It's important to conceptualize the, the tidal volume if of extreme importance. What about PIP? PIP, we like or we dislike, we don't have any data telling us that the very high PIP, super PIP, and so on, is better than the low PIP. You know the recent uh, review of Bellani around the world, uh, even in severe RDS from Celsius, the people use a PIP around 10. Now, I doubt that all the doctors in the world are uh, stupid not to recognize that maybe if I have something goes better. The facts are that, that we do not have any proof that PIP prevents damage. But some experimental work, which could be also discussed. So I think the PIP around 10, between 10 and 15, is what the people at least normally use. And we don't have data about FIO2 frequency, flow. In the 70s, this one, FIO2, was the devil. The first randomized trial in extracorporeal circulation was done not to decrease pressure, but to decrease FIO2s in the treated group. That means in the group with extracorporeal support. Then the CO2, FIO2 problem disappeared, but still potentially, may, I would prefer to be treated with 40% than with 100% of CO2. Respiratory rate, remember the hammer, but is not usually considered. And the flow, which gives us the possible mechanical injury due to the rate of change of the lung parenchyma, is also ignored. All these are included in the mechanical power. And this mechanical power is given in this part of the lung, that uh, Years ago, we baptized baby lung just to make clear that we give a big shot in lung, which, according to the lung severity, may be smaller and smaller and smaller. And, of course, if I have the same mechanical power in an elephant or in a mouse, the effects will be different. So the mechanical power should be ideally tailored first for the lung size. And, of course, in normal lung, if I give a normal tidal volume, my distortion is about 20%, because my starting volume is 2 liters and a half. In RDS, I have uh, maybe easy to have 1 to 1, or even greater than that. Recruitment, another problem. This is uh, big recruiters, that means a lot of edema. Lower recruiter, that means far less edema. Recruitability goes together with the severity of what we call uh, ARDS. But what is important are the presence of the interfaces. Here in red, you see the regions in which the mechanical applied power is distributed unevenly and may appear multiplied 
by, we estimate, about 2. That means if I apply the mechanical power here, the effect, let's see, is 1. The same mechanical power of the airways, but applied here, here is locally multiplied, is about 2. will be less here, but 2 in these regions. That means, in simple words, greater is the unhomogeneity of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the parenchyma, greater is uh, the uneven distribution of mechanical power. And this is how what, what we call RDS. Yellow is perfectly healthy non-inflammed baby lung. In a yellow, excuse me, white, in yellow is inflamed lung. In red is inflamed and not homogeneous, and here is inflamed and completely non-aerated. And we may have a patient with severe RDS, and there is no space of the lung, which is normal. What is the preventive strategy here? How is possible? Does exist a safe mechanical ventilation in a lung like this? I have some, uh, some doubt about this. So, what we can have which uh, makes the lung more homogeneous? We may have a proposition. Here is a supine. Big here, low here, and then in healthy subject, in RDS, and this is in prone. Prone position is not a miracle, just makes the lung more receptive to whatever, whatever insult I give to the lung. And in severe RDS is important, and this is another thing that has been finally proved with a proposition we know the pathophysiology, the indication, and so on. In severe RDS, I think a proposition for what we know now is a must. So, if I had to conclude, in all we have now, we have for sure the tidal volume. Low tidal volume is a must. PIP is debatable. Between 10 and 15 is what you use around the world. You may have uh, arguments pro and con for some subset of the patient. Alternative treatments, uh, to me, should be when the mechanical power will be proved, uh, some threshold mechanical power should be the best indication to shift to the extracorporeal support. But if I had summarize uh, all my scientific life, I would uh, say this one, that uh, to induce less damage, we have to use less power, that means whatever knob in the ventilator you decrease, decrease in mechanical power, tidal volume or PEEP or data pressure, and whatever maneuver you do, making the lung more homogeneous, basically is a prone position, plus some PEEP in some patients is more debatable, this I think should be the right direction but the effort should be paid to define which are the real conditions for which 
the mechanical, safe mechanical ventilation simply does not exist. Thank you for the attention. Thank you very much, Luciano. Um, <clears throat> now, there, there was a question from the audience about how do you manage driving pressure uh, for AODS during septic shock, and I think you answered that with a slide that's still up there, is that try and reducing your, your power, your driving power, isn't it? That's right. Of course, uh, whatever decreases the driving pressure goes in the right direction. But, you know, the driving pressure is uh, nothing less than the relationship that we have between tidal volume and respiratory system compliance. So it's not a question what is better than the other one. It's a question of how much you understand the basic physiology of the mechanical ventilation. And uh, I think those are very wise words, is that um, rather than overcomplicating um, this, this, the issue of ventilation is try and, and keep it simple and work from basic principles, and that is what Luciano was just referring to, the basic principles of, of physiology, understanding physiology and, and, and pathophysiology. So, Luciano, thank okay. you very much for that. And, and re remember one thing, that everybody speaks the, 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 the about the driving pressure. But driving pressure is just a part of the problem. Don't forget the peak level you start with. Don't forget the frequency. Going from 25 to 15 makes make a terrible difference. We are accumulating proofs in experimental setting about that. So it's the complex that we give, which is uh, there is not one magic number, one magic, uh, one magic pill. You have to consider all the picture together. And it's very individualized to the patient. All right. That's right. Thank you very much, Luciano. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Just moving on, our next and final speaker for the session on uh, evidence-based sepsis therapy is none other than Didier Payen, who I believe must be sitting in Paris right now. Um, Didier is uh, also well-known in critical care circuits, and uh, he's a professor and head of department of anesthesia and critical care at La Boussia University Hospital in Paris, and also the program manager of resuscitation research and experimental uh, laboratory research. Um, he is very highly regarded and very widely published in uh, all of the uh, high-impact factor journals, and I would like to welcome him to come and talk to us about the prevention and therapy of renal failure in sepsis. Didier, over to you. Hello, Mark. Hello, everybody. Hello, all the septologue of the world. It's a great event. Congratulations to the, to the organizers. So today, uh, the talk I have to clarify maybe is the prevention and therapy for renal failure, which is a big task since if we have something to solve the problem of acute injury, that would be absolutely gorgeous. And I would like to give some uh, information and data to justify why the kidney is a key issue. First of all, uh, uh, if we speak about the renal failure, all the conditions, and I was a student, I learned renal failure definitions based on the global organ insufficiency. And rapidly, the community recently, the last decade, understood that you have an organ failure 
This is starting earlier with cellular damage, which was preceding all the alteration in function. Then when you have sufficient amount of cells damaged by the sepsis and the inflammation, then you can have an organ injury. And if this organ injury is dysfunctioning a bit, but with the growing uh, alterations, you can have a global alteration of the organ. And then we move from renal failure itself to acute kidney injury to better classify and maybe better interfere with the process responsible for acute kidney injury. Then several uh, scoring systems have uh, been published to try to understand and classify better the patients. And all of this, of course, scoring system are based on the two major information we can have routinely for the patients. Uh, one is related to the glomerular filtration rate, which means creatinine level or variations in creatinine level or clearance of creatinine. And the other one is related to the urinary uh, uh, system, and we can collect the urinary output and see if it's normal or reduced. With a combination of the both, we have two scores which have been published in 2003 for the refill one and the Akin score in 2007, roughly the same idea behind the, these scores, showing first the risk of acute kidney injury, then classifying an injury itself, and finally failure based on the level of creatinine modifications and urinary output modifications. So the combination of the two, you can classify the acute kidney injury or absence, mild or severe kidney injury. Of course, at the end, you can get the loss or end-stage renal disease after the acute phase, especially in uh, septic shock. And this has been also done with the Kidigo Association which is giving you a scoring system, which is almost uh, the same idea that the one used for the refill and the Akin score, uh, based again on serum creatinine and urinary output. So having this dysfunction uh, 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 criteria and scoring system, we can classify the patients uh, in acute kidney injury severity. Why it's so important to look at the kidney now and why it was not so important in the past except uh, with the idea to assist the, uh, the kidney to replace the function of the kidney for uh, uh, water control or cellular control or acid-based control is because it has been nicely shown in many studies that the presence of acute kidney injury in sepsis is associated with a clear high, higher mortality compared to the people without uh, acute kidney injury. Even when you plug this for patients having a similar level of SOFA score, for example, that the presence of the kidney injury is really clearly related to higher mortality. Then if we look at the uh, pathophysiology if we want to do something therapeutically efficient, so we have to understand better what is behind this acute kidney injury. 
So the question might be, do the patients die with acute kidney injury or are they dying from an acute kidney injury? So finally, if we very uh, uh, simplistically summarize the potential uh, items which may play a major role in this relation between acute kidney injury and higher death, we can say that we have some genetic factors. Genetic factors means that perhaps for some patients, we have a susceptibility of the kidney, which is genetically fixed. And then facing an acute inflammation, they will be more frequently uh, with an acute kidney injury than others. The second one is related to the pre-existing comorbidities, which may play a major role for the patients in ICU having a septic shock. It's clear that people with nephrological sclerosis or diabetes or some other uh, severe chronic diseases may have a higher risk of acute kidney injury during septic shock. In addition to this, the acute factors which may precipitate the kidney function to be altered uh, could be separated in two types. First is the renal hypoperfusion. It seems to be clear that if you are not perfusing the kidney or at least not oxygenating the kidney sufficiently enough, this tissue will fail because the kidney is consuming a lot of oxygen for doing the job it has to do, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which has nothing to do with the French work time. And uh, this hypoperfusion was admitted for a while to be a major factor. The second one might be the inflammation. Since the blood, the blood uh, inflamed blood is perfusing the kidney, it may also alter the uh, kidney cells tissue. Then when you have this, the third question might be why the people are dying more frequently when they have an acute kidney injury. And then if we understand this, perhaps we can propose some uh, uh, therapeutic interventions. First of all, remembering that we have very close uh, 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 vicinity between different types of cells in the kidney in the vessels first as for the other organs. So we have circulating immune cells, the platelets and the red cells, which are very close to the endothelial cells. But in addition to that, we have a close vicinity between the vessels and the uh, renal tubular cells. And the combination of this very small distances between the two may probably precipitate uh, the consequences of inflammation. What happens when the, the inflammation is there, whatever the, the inflammation etiology is, is the following. So you have a complex mechanisms of interaction between the circulating immune cells, inflammatory cells, interacting with the endothelial cells, crossing over and going to the tissue and releasing some mediators uh, acting as a toxic inflamed cells for the tubular cells, and all together may precipitate the alteration of the tissue. And this is probably true for many organs, especially for the kidney. Then, what can we do? We can see at the database that most of the time, the acute injury in septic shock is related with patients with shock. Then it's 
logic to attribute the uh, kidney dysfunction to ischemia related to the shock. And that reason why the clinicians are spending energy to correct blood pressure, uh, to correct the cardiac output, maybe the renal blood flow, if they have the idea that the renal blood flow is related to the cardiac output, and maybe hypovolemia. So microhemodynamic is the first line for uh, preventing or reducing or limiting the acute kidney injury. But we have also some patients without shock during sepsis having also an acute kidney injury, which has, by definition, nothing to do with the renal hypoperfusion. And more importantly, if we look at the individual studies, uh, testing the uh, ex vivo human epithelial tubular cells uh, incubated with uh, plasma coming from septic patients, what we observe, we observe that these cells are changing their phenotype, becoming like uh, the phenotype of the cells uh, obtained from animal experiments or human beings when we do the renal biopsy. So finally, hypoperfusion in itself is not the only one explanation for acute injury. So finally, if we look at the histology coming from the patients dying from septic shock, having an anuria uh, when the biopsy is done, and this uh, a fascinating paper uh, published by Nicola Lorel in 2010 in ICM, they showed that the acute tubular lesions were present, but most of them were related with, to the intense infiltration by leukocytes, mainly monocytic cells, and also the presence of tubular cells apoptosis and not too much necrosis. Uh, the necrosis was supposed to be related to ischemia. And they concluded nicely that uh, beyond those associated, uh, those lesions associated with simple acute tubular injury, uh, the capillary leukocytic infiltration and apoptosis seems to be very important. So it suggests that at least in the more severe cases, we have some inflammatory uh, mechanisms more than ischemic mechanisms. Then if we want to treat the patients or to prevent, so it's important to consider the hemodynamic problems. Hemodynamic can be summarized in pressure and flow and volume. And then, taking care of this, we expect that we prevent or limit the acute kidney injury. It has been shown by the group of Paul Martin in Marseille that the blood pressure increase has limited impact on the change in, func in the renal function. Uh, higher pressure, uh, at least for the first 24 hours, does not change too much the renal function and the creatinine clearance. The volume challenge seems to be positive for some uh, extent, but it might be very deleterious giving some kidney edema and then stopping the, the function of the kidney. The diuresis might be better, but the function is still limited. The renal blood flow, when we have a, a, an indicator of this with the echodoppler, for example, seems to be most of the time maintained or increased when the cardiac output goes up. And then we still have an acute kidney injury. Maybe there is a, a special uh, issue or attention that we should uh, look at is the venous congestion, as the Mathieu Legrand showed in our group, that the CVP can help you to detect some uh, renal congestion 
related to mechanical ventilation with positive pressure breathing, for example, uh, especially when you give a large amount of fluid to the patients, so you create some kind of congestion in different organs, including the kidney, and maybe when you have the right ventricular dysfunction, which is frequent in septic shock. So if we put all together the system, so we can propose at least for inflammation, the following uh, uh, hypothesis, blood is going to the kidney containing activated inflamed cells, releasing mediators, which may change the phenotype of the endothelial cells, and the cells can then cross over and stimulate the release of mediators, which may in turn change the phenotype and the function of the tubular cells. In addition to that, we can have some uh, modifications of the urinary cells uh, or size of the kidney, since you can filtrate some mediators, which in turn may activate the receptors on the uh, tubular cells and then activating the lesions of this cell. The combination of the two may, by the inflammation process, explain what happens in acute kidney injury. So finally, uh, is there any difference for the blood from the blood uh, in patients with different uh, severity of acute kidney injury? So we have uh, recently published uh, uh, the, uh, the results of the so-called inflammatory markers. First of all, the, the, the leukocyte count. So you see in white, no acute kidney injury, in gray, you have moderate and black uh, severe acute kidney injury. There is no difference for the leukocyte count. No difference also for HLA-DR, which is the, the link between the innate and immune system. So it's uh, depressed a long time in the same way between the two or the three groups of patients. And finally, if you look at the cytokines, you see that the... Uh, uh, the cytokines are elevated in people in relation with the severity of the, uh, of the acute kidney injury. Uh, you see here, the most severe acute kidney injury at the highest level of IL-6, so it's a pro-inflammatory molecule, but it's still true for the anti-inflammatory molecules in IL-10, which means that the process globally, pro and anti, are uh, activated in the most severe acute kidney injury patients. Then we can say inflammation might be always deleterious. It's true, probably, but not only, since some uh, process of inflammation may protect the kidneys from uh, uh, the injury. And this was shown by Benjamin Schusterman in 2015. Uh, and uh, he showed with the uh, patients we collected that sometimes your genetic capability to express the receptors for some chemokines may protect yourself against acute kidney injury. So the more you have the, these uh, 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 receptors for the chemokines, the better will be your protection against the inflammatory lesions. So finally, it's more complex than we expected initially, and to have a prevention and therapy, so we have limited actions for the moment, which have been demonstrated. For the non-modifiable risk factors, we cannot do many things, except knowing they exist, 
comorbidities or genetic susceptibility. For the modifiable risk factors, we can optimize the perfusion of the kidney and the oxygenation. We can avoid, of course, uh, the use of toxic compounds, limiting the, uh, the use of contrast material, for example, for the CT scan. And then having some supportive therapy like fluid, restricted uh, therapy may, might be better than the liberal one. Pressures has to be adapted for the better pressure, but not too much for the constriction and limiting the venous congestion. And we need some uh, 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 biomarkers to know where we are. Among the biomarkers, we have a huge list of them. I don't have the time to go through, except to mention the two which have been uh, published by the group of John Kellum, showing that these two biomarkers, TIM2 and IGF-BP7, are apparently very interesting to detect the kidney injury before uh, the organ dysfunction. Maybe the uh, transcriptome or RNA or gene expression might be useful, as you can see here. For the renal sofa, you have different expression of the RNA. So all of this is uh, becoming to be a standard, perhaps, in the next years to classify the patients. And to conclude, I can say the renal perfusion is probably important but has not the exclusivity for explaining acute kidney injury. The oxygenation might be more important than the perfusion itself. The systemic inflammation invades the renal tissue and is doing the uh, renal cells, the inducing renal cell dysfunctions. Biomarkers, multiple ones for the kidney athlete, have to be developed and to ensure that you know what is the mechanism and what are the lesions you have and maybe the rust is uh, the rust detection, the reactive oxygen spatial detection might be simple at the bedside technology. Thank you for your attention. Merci beaucoup, Didier. Um, thank you for that uh, very uh, enlightening and thorough talk. Uh, quick question is, so basically you are advocating, so rather than just uh, aiming for a map, what we really should be aiming for is, is trans-organ perfusion pressures. Um, especially in the setting of RV dysfunction and higher and venous congestion. Um, my question to you is, um, what, about, what do you think about uh, early dialysis with respect to middle molecules uh, and pro-inflammatory cytokines? That's, of course, it's still a debatable topic, you know, uh, removing the bad things and keeping the good one. The question is that we don't know exactly what is bad, what is good, so maybe removing all and replacing with, uh, I would say, fresh and uh, non-toxic compounds would be uh, an issue at the early phase of uh, septic shock to prevent uh, the acute injury. But there is no, no clear data for that. Maybe the plasma pheresis or renal uh, or fluid or, or, or plasma replacement might be an approach at the acute phase. But for the moment, nothing is clear from this. Um, next thing is, do you have any clear-cut uh, contraindications to the use of aminoglycosides in the setting of AKI and sepsis? It's a good point. Uh, personally, uh, if you do the loading dose for these antibiotics one time, then you are loaded for three weeks at least if you want to get the, the drug inside the kidney if it's a urinary infection or in the other tissues, I will not renew 
the next dose of aminoglycoside until I know the acute kidney injury is present or not. So loading is okay. Repeating the dose depends on the acute kidney injury you have. And um, when the patient has reached a stage when they, um, their vasoplegia is settling and their, their glycocalyx is recovering and their third space fluids, uh, it's time for, for the patient to mobilize that and for us to get those. Is there any, uh, any opinion that you have on uh, the use of fruzamide infusions? If so, how aggressively? And do you use high concentration albumin or hyperosmolar solutions? That's a very uh, also old question, which is revisited uh, frequently. And uh, recently, we learned the the the, the furosemide test. Uh, the logic is to say, if we block the sodium reabsorption at place in pump, we we reduce the need of oxygen for the pump uh, because the pump are blocked. Then using the furosemide for this might be protective at least at the initial phase. Why not? And, uh, and Dr. Shula showed a very nice result suggesting that using furosemide might help to, for the limitation of the acute kidney injury and maybe for the uh, more or faster recovery of the renal function. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to um, close up this very interesting session. Thank you again for uh, your enlightening talks, and also thank you very much to all of uh, the speakers. I look forward to a repeat of this conference next year and hopefully a little bit more evidence-based uh, uh, therapy around a brain function and acute brain syndrome in sepsis, especially delirium and uh, morbidity associated with that. Also, the gut um, we, we've unfortunately uh, haven't had any time to cover that. And of course, the biggest organ of oil, which is the skin, where we all see a lot of morbidity uh, in our severely septic patients. To uh, close off the session, I just want to uh, thank our sponsors. And uh, there's a slide there showing who they are. Without, without them, this would not be possible. And we have had fantastic attendance. And as I said, uh, thanks to the sponsors for helping, supporting us have this event and hopefully you will support us in the future. I also would encourage registrants to become sepsis supporters because ultimately um, a lot of sepsis is preventable by addressing the basic cares properly and using common sense. So if you could have a look at these online sites and perhaps like us on Facebook and also follow us on Twitter, that would be greatly appreciated because it will strengthen our case to repeat this sort of online forum again in the future. So with that, I'd like to uh, round off the session and uh, thank all of the speakers and everybody who's participated and uh, wish you a good day and um, see you in the future or hear from you in the future. All the best. Thanks for listening and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with the session on epidemiology and long-term consequences of sepsis on October 7th. I hope I hear you then. Clear, clear, clear.